2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. I am talking to Christy Milliken and Steve F. Anderson about their new book-edited collection called Reclaiming Popular Documentary. Uh, It was issued in this year, 2021, by Indiana University Press. And what we'll do today is to review... uh, aspects of the book. It's edited by the, by the two, and we have a number of interesting essays. We'll make sure we touch on things at least a little bit. Each of them also have a, a, an essay in there as well, plus obviously the introduction. So uh, before we get into the book itself, though, let's get a little bit of information about both of you, just a little bit of background, where you are now, uh, what you're teaching, and par probably some idea of why you found this particular topic of popular documentary to be so useful to you as as something to put together a collection. So, Christy, can you start?
1: Sure. Um, I teach at Brock University in a department of communication, popular culture, and film. And so as a consequence of that, I teach courses in gender and cinema, eco-cinema, documentary studies and international film history. Not all of those in any given year, but um, those are the courses that I tend to teach. And I think in part because I have students who have majored in popular culture, it's become increasingly obvious to me that when I teach documentary courses, They come at it with that knowledge in mind, and they also I I find that my students are big consumers of documentary, usually through digital streaming platforms. Um, And and a lot of those are documentaries that tend to be somewhat mainstream that fall into this broad category of the popular. And I, so I guess as a consequence of my pedagogical experience, uh, the idea for this book seems like a, a smart one, which isn't to say that people haven't written about popular documentaries over time or that there haven't been other periods historically where documentary has been enormously popular, but really just more that I don't think there've been that many dedicated um, you know, group anthologies that have uh, meditated on the topic. So. Uh, So I thought it was a really smart uh, idea for a book proposal.
2: Great. Steve, what's your background? That was great. Um,
0: uh, And, well, I'm here because Christy invited me to participate in editing the anthology, um, and the the idea, I think, is as Christy was just saying, extremely timely because of the explosion that we've seen in popular documentary these days. Um, I am always going back to uh, teaching documentary um, this coming year. Actually, uh, I'm at UCLA. I primarily teach um, digital media, um, but our guy that taught documentary for decades retired, and so I get to actually. Um, return to my passion for documentary um, this year and developing a couple of new classes, which I'm very excited about. I actually have a little bit of a background in documentary post-production. I did a lot of sound editing and some picture editing for documentary back in the, I guess, in the 90s. Uh, I lived in Washington, DC, and there was a very vibrant documentary community there centered around places like National Geographic. And I did some work for the National Holocaust Memorial Museum. Um, and you know the Park Service and Audubon, and there, were, there are a lot of um, kind of tend to be natural history or kind of social justice oriented, a lot of activist um, related documentary. And so that's a part of what attracted me to this volume is precisely that it's a lot of people who were interested in issues of consequence and um, things that really um, matter about the way we're representing our world and um, doing so through a kind of more popular mode in documentary reaches much broader audiences and has uh, much more potential for impact.
2: And I if, if if I think I've got this right, Christy, you actually started the project and then felt that uh, you needed a little bit more help with it than you know, whether you bit off more than you can true or you just felt that you would like to do it better with someone else and you, uh, Sort of drew, drew, brought Steve along for the ride.
1: Well, that's true. I mean, Steve and I were—we are still great friends. But we were great friends in grad school, and actually met through Michael Renoff, who is, a, you know, a mentor to both of us. I think he was on both of our dissertation committees. Um, um, and Michael Renoff, along with Jane Gaines and Faye Ginsburg, um, were the founders of the Visible Evidence Conference um, that has been going on for, I don't even know, 27 plus years, is that right? Does anyone know? Um, And and of course, the Visible Evidence community has had a huge impact on our thinking about documentary over the years. A number of people who've contributed to the anthology are people that we've met through that conference. Um, So I I would have to say, it was the joy of my grad school experience, which really was great um and the the you know strength of the friendship with Steve that made me bring him on board it wasn't that i was overwhelmed so much is that i just wanted to do the project with someone else have another opinion another set of eyes looking at the huge number of um of proposals that we had and really ha- trying to decipher how to organize them which ones to accept how to proceed
0: it's a lot of tr- it's a lot of trouble to edit these anthologies it turns out i always thought oh that that would be so great you know, edit, edit a book, another publication. Um, But it's actually a lot of work and it took a long time for this volume to come together. Um, So anyway, and it's just way more fun to do it with um, in a kind of collaborative relationship like the way we did this one.
1: Totally. I agree.
2: Yeah. And there's, if I, if I count it right, there's like 19 essays and some of them are you ones that you each did, but I can imagine having to deal with, you know, 17 or 18 people and their work and deadlines and all that other stuff i can imagine that that added to the stress so you're right it's probably better to um do that
1: i just want can i interrupt and say our contributors were great (laughs) i know people can say dealing with scholars is like herding cats but they were always really responsive to our requests to deal with things in a very timely manner so i can't i can't speak to that sometimes nightmare experience that some people have mm-hmm. with academics and their deadlines. People were great. Well, oh,
2: that's, that's great. I mean, <laughs> uh, that that really makes life a lot easier, especially for something like this. Mm-hmm. While we're on that subject and you can each talk about this depending on your particular roles in it, how did you gather your participants? Did you make a general request for, um, essays or were some of these people who you knew have said things already on the topic of popular documentary that was so important that you wanted to make sure they were included? Was it a combination?
1: Absolutely a combination. I did, out a, I did a call for papers and several of the listservs, the um, Film Studies Association of Canada, Society for Cinema and Media Studies and Physical Evidence, um, but also absolutely through conferences, I recruited people who were presenting on topics that, um, that I thought would work really well with the manuscript. And then when Steve came on board, he did some recruiting of his own and brought, um, several terrific papers, several great contributors onto the project as well. But it was a combination of networking, visible evidence, networking, um, but also, uh, academic list serves, right. Steve? Yeah, exactly.
2: Anybody in particular where you were particularly happy to to bring in, or was it a matter that uh, you knew these folks would come through for you? And, and which one of your children do you like best?
0: <laughs> while, while you're, you're right. That's you're not the best that.
2: question in the world. I guess I should probably not say that because you're right. I'm just thankful. The bottom line is, is it's great uh, for Christy, at least, and, and obviously for you, is that because of your background and having documentary filmmaking experience, that really must have helped because practicalities, even though this is academics, it's always great when there's some practical people around who can talk about what really happens. Okay, I I, I see
0: where you were going with that now, Joel. Thanks. Thank you for that that lead-in. So one of the things that I'm really most proud of this volume um, about is precisely that it brings together a mixture of scholars and practitioners. So a few of the people that I brought in um, a little bit into the collection um, are people who have a a background in both. So like Alex Juhas and Rick Prelinger and Alison DeFren, who are all makers as well as scholars. Uh, All of them have university appointments. Um, but they also have a history in um, creating things in a popular or semi-popular context. So. And
1: Dylan Nelson.
0: And Dylan, right, but she was yours, so uh, she was already there when I got well,
1: there. Well, so was Alex.
0: <laughs> oh, was she? Okay, all right, yeah. my, my mistake. Anyway, so...
1: <laughs> yeah, that was a visible how, what, evidence meeting.
0: What great friends we are, so we're <laughs> allowed to mistreat each other on the air. Um, yeah, so anyway, so that's, uh, that, that is, I think, one of the things that, um, as well as the international dimension of the of the book. So it's a a lot of Canadian scholars, a lot of U.S. scholars. It's a, it kind of like crosses those boundaries in interesting ways.
1: And a Brit.
2: Oh, one Brit. There we go, we'll let the Brit in. Uh, anyway, so before we start talking about individual parts though, how did you handle the dual role of editors as far as what at, what, uh, particular person you each of you worked with how did you divide it all up and did each of you i'm assuming still depended on the other person for eyes but how did you sort of decide okay steve's going to do these or christy's going to do or was there more of a less of a process than i'm thinking
1: well it was it was a process but i would say that we are a little bit uh I don't want to say disorganized but we're very kind of fluid in the way that we did things and we tended to just we'd have a Zoom meeting and we'd say you take this one I'll take this one and split it up pretty easily I mean in a couple of cases where someone was a closer friend maybe the other would say why don't you do this just because it's easier for you to to stand on the outside and give them the editorial advice that they need but really pretty equitable and easy, I, I would say, wouldn't wouldn't you, Steve?
0: Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, it, it kind of just unfolded. It made sense at the time, both in terms of our individual areas of interest and expertise, and then you write right, personal relationships. So.
2: Well, yeah. And of course, each of you wrote individual essays, so that I'm assuming the other person did the editing, which is obvious, which is good. I mean, like I said before, I can imagine doing a editing. A collection with two people, or even two or three people, it's got to make it much more interesting to do it that way. I mean, easier because you have somebody to talk to about, and that's great. So, actually, could I add just one one thing about that? Because um, we, you know,
0: we worked very closely with uh, two editors at Indiana yep. University Press, and um, got really uh, very remarkably uh, engaged and insightful and useful feedback from the. From the peer reviewers that they sent it out to, um, and Indiana, I don't know if they always do this, but there was a, a it was a two stage process. We did one complete, we got one round of peer review, did a complete round of revisions, sent the complete manuscript out again to a different reviewer, got a completely new round of of, uh, of feedback, and did a, a second round of revisions. So that by the time the book was um, through that process, it was really it was. Very clean, very polished, and, and very ready to go. It was a very, very rigorous process that they put us through, which we resented at the time because it was so time-consuming. <laughs> um, but in the end, I think it really made for a for a very strong um,
1: strong collection. And I think for a cluster of reasons, that wasn't really the typical way of doing things. I think when they went, they sent the manuscript out, hoping for two responses. They only were able to get one. But it's true. I, I when you were asking that question, Joel, I, I immediately thought what Steve said was, which was that we can't let the question go by without saying that we got really great reader reports. They were really detailed and they were really thoughtful and smart, um, and they really helped make the manuscript better.
2: Well, one of the reasons I always like asking about these kind of processes is that many of the folks that listen to this podcast are other film scholars obviously of course pop people who what listen to it aren't necessarily academics all the time but i know i have a number of listeners who have actually appeared on the podcast in the past and more and more often than not they're academics and it's always great to hear about a process that goes well and, and and that's great to hear so let's start to talk a little bit though more importantly about what your overall point of view was in putting this together because obviously it wasn't just a bunch of unrelated essays that you know you have an overall concept in mind. and, 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 and I think it's if I think I'm correct in, in explaining and in, Christy, I'll ask you to fill in more for me. Um, your basic idea was that popular documentary isn't always treated as kindly by scholars and academic communities as you feel like it should be. And that you consider it to be important as part of the overall field of documentary and movies, and therefore uh, deserves some better uh, attention. And then your idea was let's talk about this as a concept and have some people talk about their own points of view related to popular documentary
1: yeah that's that's exactly right. Uh, I, I certainly had experience myself at uh, at visible evidence presenting on films that had people maligned right in the in the q and r period. like, why are you dealing with a film like this? It's you know, anyway, they were quite dismissive but but they. The point behind the the book was really to cast a very wide net and just see what people wanted to do with this notion of the popular in relation to popular documentary. I wasn't looking for a ton of articles that were going to try to celebrate or disparage it either way, but just come at it from a variety of, of perspectives. And that also, I, I guess, I should you know clearly say that doesn't mean that you know at at conferences like Visible Evidence or SCMS, that I haven't heard people deliver papers or even read papers on documentaries that happen to be popular, but that they don't really think um, productively about the issue of the popular in relation to documentary studies. That was that was sort of the impetus behind the book. I mean, got, there, there are a ton of books on you know Michael Moore and uh, you know, Werner Herzog. They, there are clearly popular documentarians out there who get written about all the time. Um, But it was really, it was really more of a way of trying to think about how these kind of popular documentary entertainment genres really um, have proliferated and how they engage, you know, pressing issues of our time like what you know how how do they function in relation to the Democratic project, or or don't they. Um, So it was really, it was really deliberately, I mean, the call for papers, it was really wide open, it was really asking. Um, people to come from a multitude of different, you know, pot- potential perspectives, I would say. And
2: Steve, how, um, how, having worked in what we can probably call the bo- popular documentary field, uh, how did your point of view help with this process?
0: Well, I, I guess I would say that, um, you know, media scholars have a kind of tortured relationship to popular culture um and it kind of cycles in and out of fashion you know there's you know at times we kind of gravitate toward the snooty elitist you know obscure um films that part of your cultural capital is the fact that you've seen these obscure um you know media objects and you can and you alone can write about them um and other times we kind of like you know embrace our desire for you know kind of guilty pleasure and and uh, you know, popular sort of uh, pleasure in in the media that we consume, um, and then also find ways to to justify that by writing about it in smart ways or interesting ways, and and um, you know, kind of recuperating it. Um, so that, you know, there's also this tendency, I think, with uh, in scholars in general, of kind of like needing to to kill your parents, of needing to kind of do away with the 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 bad old scholarship of the previous generation, and I think we didn't really. like we needed to do that here it was really more of you know the book became about reclaiming um, and recapturing something that has slipped through the cracks maybe Um, but it wasn't necessary to say that this this is better than what was coming before you know christy and i were both trained by some of the the giants in the fields really the the creators of this field people like michael renov and bill nichols and so it's more like we're i think building on that foundation and that background uh, more than feeling like we need to replace something that is no longer working with something newer, smarter, and better, um, it's really about a kind of inclusive approach to bringing those things together.
1: Love that answer. Yeah, I think that what we've really hoped to do is start uh, start a conversation, right? I mean, to to start more to to in, to create a a subfield of uh, of analysis and debate that can open up. Uh, not that this is the definitive statement. It's just it's a, a pivot in a, a logical direction too, uh-huh. really.
2: That was one of the things I noted in in reading the various essays, is that there's a lot of the uh usual suspects included in your in some of the discussions, but there's also quite yeah. a few concepts and ideas that still need uh, it's still worth reviewing, so that it's a great way to, as you say, introduce and and get things started. So the book has six parts, and each part consists of a certain number of essays. One of the things I particularly liked about the book was the fact that you made sure to include some uh, introductory notes to each part. Definitely helps to make it easier on the reader to get a sense as to what your you know your points. So. Obviously, the part one, there's only two essays, and the first one is yours together, which I'm assuming works as an introduction in many ways. It's uh, The first part is called P- Popular Documentary Today, and that first essay is Pop Docs, The Work of Popular Documentary in the Age of Alternate Facts. Now, when did you write that essay, or when did you start on that essay in relation to the rest of the collection? Was this something that... You always felt this is basically the concepts or the ideas I wanted to make sure I put out there. I know I say I as both of you, Uh, or did it, was it more of a matter of as you read more of the essays, they gave you the insight that you needed to help you along? We'll start with Christy again.
1: So the book always had to have an introduction. We just happened to co-author it in the end. And yeah, we, we definitely wrote it after all of the essays were assembled, um but it contained the fragments of the proposal as well just so that we we knew what we were touching upon um as the basis for the papers that we subsequently received but um and i'll go back to your comment about the individual section intros and just say that was one of our reader (laughs) our reader report recommendations which we complained about having to do, but think is a really excellent addition to the book. Um, But in, in the same way, you know, what we had called an introduction, people asked us to treat as a legitimate and standalone chapter that, yes, introduces the book, but also sort of, you know, stretches out some of the contours and arguments that shape it. And that make a make a a real defense for the value of thinking about popular documentary in in relation to pressing issues of our time. I mean, a lot of these films are actually, even if they they are you know easily dismissed as slick and you know forgettable, they're still engaging really significant issues of the, of the day, right so um, I don't know if I completely answered that question. Steve, you can well, jump well, in think- there.
0: And it is also a, a kind of uh, a marker of the the time in which it was created. I think the, the first call yeah. probably went out in 2015, 2016. Yep. Then we have an election in the United States that um, brings a, a different relationship to the idea of verifiable truth, belief in science, you know, sort of facts and, and factuality. Um. So I, I don't think we would have used the phrase alternative facts uh, if this book had come out a little bit earlier uh, than for it sure. did. So th- it was very much mapped onto the last five years in, you know, Canadian and U.S. history.
2: So then, of course, you have another um, an, another essay in that chapter. The only other essay Ezra Winton's Reclaiming the Popular for Public Interest Documentary. I'm assuming, since the heading of the of that first part is popular documentary to today, I'm guessing, or I'm assuming from reading it, that Ezra's uh, essay was meant to sort of help to continue the introduction into the ideas behind the, you wanted to help present as part of this. Um, what uh, were some of the things, and, and as we go through these, if you were the person who helped to edit who edited that particular chapter I'd love to hear each of your thoughts on these various essays um, which of you worked with Ezra on his essay at first I know you both looked at everything but given how important so, his is at the beginning
1: just for clarity part one popular documentary today has two chapters one is Ezra's and the other is Pat oftahida's paper. Um, so, you know, Ezra's is a, about um, documentary film festivals, uh, specifically about the Hot Ducks Film Festival in Toronto, which is one of the biggest, you know, dedicated documentary uh, film festivals in the world. It's what he did his doctoral work on. Um, so I did work with him. I, I solicited a paper from him uh, thinking he was a perfect, can- someone very ambivalent about the issue of the popular, I must, I must say, but someone who was a perfect candidate, to offer um, to offer a perspective on festival studies, which is a huge emerging subfield in cinema studies, um, so that's how uh, that's how Ezra got involved. And if you know, I know I know Steve quite rightly talked about favorite children there, but Pat Aftehaida just responded to the call for papers, and that was just a boon for us because she is. Such an amazing, prolific, and incisive thinker on docu- on contemporary documentary, on the history of documentary too. But um, I I was thrilled to have her engage the issue of um, a public television and uh, uh, public television documentary. So that was just a a fortuitous proposal that came in.
2: And before Steve talks a little more about this, I have to apologize. I must be working from a very old table of contents because it seemed to have shown um public tele- uh patricia 's essay as being the first essay in part two so obviously i miss up mis misspoke because i my uh <laughs> information is not right so not your fault okay. that's for sure um yeah well i, I do want to talk about this chapter a bit because public television is so important for what we consider popular um documentary uh what and and, and when we talk about that, Steve, you can talk in more detail than me. What is uh, the importance, or how important has it been for the over the since public television's been around, as far as U.S. documentaries?
0: I don't know that I have a good answer for that. <laughs> I, I mean, part of part of what was exciting to me about um, about Pat's chapter, and first of all, I like Christy. I'm a huge fan of hers. Um, you know, I, I couldn't have done mo- about half of my career. Without the work that she's done in terms of advocacy around fair use um, and intellectual property um, transformation. So that said, um, her contribution to this volume is not related to that. It's it's about her long history and deep knowledge of uh, organizations like the ITVS and um, public television documentary, which are very often kind of left out of the discussion when we um, think about a uh, documentary from a kind of cinema media studies context. It may get a little bit more play in a kind of communication studies or mass communication context. But um, I, we felt like her um, essay was really uh, kind of a, a grounding, a foundational um, positioning of the field in relation to an often neglected um, area in public TV.
2: Yeah, because one of the things that I found most interesting, I learned things just from that chapter because when I think of public television, you know, I, I I watched plenty of public te- uh, documentaries that have started on public television. I just didn't always understand or didn't know that there were different groups within public television who were producing the material and that one show or, or series might have been with one group. And, and, and the thing about public television that I've always found is that you can pretty much guess, depending on which series or which group it's from, what to expect, at least as far as format and concept. So, for example, we know what Ken Burns is going to look like with a documentary. American Experience are almost always a certain format. And it's just one of those things where I think they, to me personally, public television has done such a good job of giving structure to documentaries that they produce rather than making them, I mean, they're all standalone, but uh, you know what you're getting in many ways.
1: Yeah, and I, I actually like the way that she talks about it in terms of a documentary, Ecology, right, that it really has created its own kind of system of different methods of production, but with a, a kind of um, consistency of a, a product, right, that is viewable, knowable, repeatable. Um, I, think, I think she's really smart about talking about the business of public television and the, the creation of so many different forms within it
0: kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply
1: your brain needs support and new ollie brainy chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health made with scientifically backed ingredients like thai ginger l-theanine and caffeine brainy chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus stay chill or get energized be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
2: So part two then, uh, called Documentary Ecologies. Uh, that's why I guess my list had that one in that section, because it did deal with ecology, but documentary ecology. But anyway... Um, what are we talking about when we say documentary ecologies? Can you give us a little bit of a of an overview of what you mean by that? I'm, I th- I think it's obvious from within the chapters, but uh, I think it might be helpful to have a brief discussion of that.
1: Um, well, I th- I think it, it really it has it's it's become more uh, it's become a a an Popular language it's become popular language to use um, across disciplines. we We often refer to um, different fields as ecosystems now. It's part of the rise, I think, of um, environmentalism and the language of uh, of environmental thought that has enabled ecology to recirculate and refunction kind of differently than it probably did 20 years ago. Um, but these are all eco documentaries that the the three writers in this chapter are dealing with, so um ecologies you know make sense both in the traditional literal way but also lumping them together in in as documentaries that um, that are part of a, an eco doc ecosystem.
0: yeah, I would say that um you know when we were in graduate school, it was sufficient to write about the context excuse me the content of a media text. So we do textual analysis. We would bring a smart kind of interpretive lens to um, what was on screen. Uh, and so I, to me, the, uh, the idea of an ecological approach suggests exactly what Christy was just talking about, a kind of the interconnection and the interrelationship, the interdependence of much larger systems. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, it's insufficient these days, I would say in many cases to just stick to what's on screen you need to think about the production context, the financing, the um, you know, especially when I talk about digital media, you can't talk about that without talking about your carbon footprint and the environmental impact. Literally, that the devices that are required to produce these images are um, the impact that that's having on the environment, or the the mining of raw materials required to produce lithium-ion batteries and. You know all of the the incredible waste that's generated by all of the plastics and all of the fossil fuels that are um, that are used in in creating these images. We can't just think about it as you know stories on screen or characters or you know plots or or topics anymore. It really is very much about this kind of integrated approach.
1: I wish I'd given that answer. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that was good. So this, there, as you say, there's three. Uh, first one. And, and I'm going to let you folks do the pronunciations on some of these names. Not that I don't think I could do it, but I'd rather not. I'd rather get them right. Are so we drew it. <laughs> there we go. Yep. That's the first one. I'm not falling from the sky. Flyover Global Documentary as Capitalist Body Genre. Now that's a mouthful of a title. Um, the concept of flyover, <laughs> that was the part that really got me when I when I reviewed it, was that uh, obviously documentaries, especially nature type and certain other types have always liked to feature these vista views or panoramic views. But in the days, uh, in the year and concepts that now we can have drones doing a lot of this, I suspect we've seen uh, uh, this become even more important as far as certain types of documentary.
0: Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) So, I mean, on a technical level, right, drones have made all of those things easier um but you know as zoe points out in the article we like we need to be mindful of the history of that technology and it, 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 like most technologies are rooted in in military and it's um there's something about the mastery the 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 god's eye view that's afforded by especially an unmanned aerial vehicle um that's you know pro- kind of problematic and kind of related to uh capitalism and um you know the the mastery of nature that's re- led to its destruction um and all of those things are are very closely tied together uh in that chapter it's one it's one of my favorite and and most exciting ones in the book i
1: think it's a great chapter
2: yeah unfortunately the concept of drones as we know now have become so, quote unquote, important, and I hate to use that word, but I can't think of another one in war. And the United States, in particular, seems to have decided that the best way to fight a war is to just use these drones to deliver, uh, to, to spy on, but also to deliver. And as we've already seen, even recently, with the Afghanistan issue, that uh, they're not always going to be as they're not as uh, foolproof as they want us to believe sometimes.
0: Yeah. And um, I mean, the, the proliferation of consumer grade drones has a kind of domesticating effect on our perception of drones. It's like, oh, I have one of those. How bad could they be? similar thing happened, I think, with home security systems where all of a sudden it's like, well, we were kind of troubled by the idea of homeland security and the creation of a a cabinet level position that was devoted to defending our borders after 9-11 in this country. And um, now we all have our own surveillance cameras at home that are protecting our stuff. So it's like we're kind of implicated in the development and the the domestication of these technologies that have really deeply troubling, not only historical roots, but practical roots in the everyday.
2: And then, of course, there's the issue with drones of every television commercial in the world now, especially car dealerships love using them. (laughs) (laughs) I know that's not really, that's more of a joke than having to do with, with the important things. But you're right, it's just become the norm now that these, the drones are ubiquitous and even in the United States or in other areas, we've had heard issues of drones getting in the way, so to speak, and <laughs> so as far as ecologies are concerned. So, um, the ne- the next chapter then: uh, uh, accelerating deceleration, slow violence, and time lapse cinematography. So once again, we're talking about technology uh, in producing and how we're starting to see. Um, uh, how this is continuing to change. So Devin, I'll let once again, <laughs> I, I don't know. Devin Coots? Devin Coots, thank you. Which one yeah. of you worked with Devin?
1: Um I worked with Devin. He was a he was a former grad student of ours. And Devin wrote that paper in a an eco cinema grad seminar for me. And I think did a brilliant job of Taking a look at one formal aspect of um, documentary, well, of so many films, time lapse is so popular, but it's very popular in nature documentaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and doing a really complex reading about it. you know, he goes back to Paul Virilio and and to a kind of violence that gets done to the image. And um, I think I think that was a, a really great analysis of uh, a formal technique that is used to really illustrate huge ecological change over time in a, and, and to kind of visualize this notion of slow violence that comes from Rob Nixon. So I, I just thought it was a terrific paper and asked if he would contribute to the book on the basis of, of that essay. So that's how it got into the book.
2: Um, and then we have a discussion of food documentaries. And and we're talking about not necessarily what we would consider to be reality show food documentaries. We're talking about Food Inc. as the example from Sabia Ahmed Khan. I think I got that right. And uh, what did uh, what's what's. Obviously, we're talking about uh, the the title is from Elegy to Kitsch. So obviously, we're talking about uh, different levels with food documentary. And of course, Food Inc. was a very popular book and then also documentary on the topic of, of food and, and, and its importance. Like I said, food is a very important subject for documentaries.
1: It is. And, uh, and again, she's looking in in many ways at infographics. So at the ways in which food documentaries convey important uh, information through charts and graphics and and trying to sort of do a read on, um, on how that measures against the real in a lot of those documentaries as well. That, that was a, she, she's written about several different food documentaries over the years. And I saw her present at, um, at scms years ago and um so asked her if she would um submit something on food for the for the anthology
2: I know I don't want to think Steve that I'm ignoring you. I'm trying to make Money. sure that I'm giving time depending on who's, you know, who's most familiar he with.
1: He was involved it. a lot in the other sections here.
2: Got it. Well, we'll get to him then. So anyway, so part 3, short forms and web practices. This is a I not that all the sections aren't interesting. I found this one to be particularly interesting because I'll be honest with you, I have fallen down rabbit holes on YouTube. Um, and given the fact that so many YouTube documentaries are short, or not documentaries, whatever's on YouTube tends to be shorter, you can go on for quite a while and see a lot of different things. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I, I found this chapter. And we're not just talking about YouTube, but obviously I think we agree that it's probably the most well-known uh, web uh, area to get documentary or to get film for a lot of folks these days. And the first chapter brings up uh, Errol Morris. This is not the first time we're going to hear from Errol Morris. We're going to get another one in a minute. Uh, Errol Morris, the New York Times, doc media, and op docs is pop docs. Um, obviously, the New York Times and other media outlets have gotten for many, many years now, and people probably don't even are, aren't even aware of them. Sometimes, have developed some really interesting short documentaries that. You can watch, I mean, and and I must admit, after reading the chapter, I said, I didn't even completely know this. And I, even though I didn't look at the Errol Morris ones, it is still something that's ongoing, particularly for the New York Times.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, Errol Morris is one of our kind of quintessential popular documentary auteurs these days. Um, And Anthony was writing about um, this work that's very often left out of his sort of Anthony Kinnick, correct, um, uh, writing about you know th- th- this work that um, is easily kind of neglected or dismissed or just overlooked within his body of work precisely because it's delivered online in a newspaper context, more of a journalistic context. Um, but I think he does a really nice job of, of reading that work, that body of work uh, in relation to the, the project of journalism and of documentary kind of coming together in a really interesting way and um and making the case for paying attention to this work and you know not just focusing on theatrical features as the gold standard for documentary production, but actually recognizing that mil- many millions more people see the work that uh, that uh, that appears in in an online context
2: and of course, nowadays we're getting and even though this isn't part of web practices necessarily, shorter form is becoming more well known even in the sense that you may some of those series documentary series that are out there now particularly on places like YouTube or not YouTube uh, Netflix and other places where you get a topic but it gets spread out over into four or five or 10 episodes rather than trying to and it in the one sense that gives you a, allows you to look at a topic in much more detail but it also allows the consumer to watch it in parts
1: yeah. Oh, I and mean, that's what Ken Burns has been doing for thirty right. years. But right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And the other thing that you point out in part three, related to short forms, is popular music documentary. Um, there, popular popular music has been a, a, a not just popular. Any music has been uh, used in doc for documentaries as far as as a concept. I can think of a number of music documentaries that fall into this. Uh, um, uh, somebody like Martin Scorsese has actually done a number of music related documentaries but they're long form in fact some of his are incredibly long uh, four and five hours depending on the topic but uh, when we talk about popular music it, it, and is the web being a place for the folks that, that uh, in, if you've got an interest in a particular artist or band or whatever sometimes the web is an interesting place to look for these kind of things
1: It is, although interestingly, uh, Mike Baker doesn't think there's as much innovation going on as, as there ought to be. Um, So he talks about a real move toward a kind of formulaic response to, uh, to music videos, and, um, and to the kind of short form, uh, offshoot of music videos that emerges. I'm concert performative Right,
2: that kind of, it's interesting how I can sometimes you can, Depending on the music, there are things that are obviously just performances from various bands, people usually taking them with their iPhones and stuff, but every once in a while you will find, uh, I can think of a couple of different examples, I won't go into it now because we don't need to, but where you might actually see a couple of different views of a particular performance, and it's by taken by different people, and I think in some ways that's very interesting all by itself, just to see those kind of chain reactions from one place to the other. And then the last essay in that section um, is from Allison Defren, and it's from the essay film to the video essay, between the critical and the popular. Uh, what is her? What is she? Uh, the idea of essay film and video essay. What's the comparison there? What's the differences?
0: Yes, uh, that's a great question. So um, you know, Allison is, as I mentioned earlier, herself a, a kind of scholar maker. Um, she is, in fact, I think, to my mind, one of the most important um, uh, creators of the scholarly video essay. Um, who's working right now, in addition to writing about them critically. Um, so she, this, in this, her contribution attempts to map the um, the practice of the scholarly video essay, which has a particular form that's emerged just in the last, really, just in the last few years. I think the. Um, SCMS sponsored journal, In Transition, has been really incredibly instrumental and in, in catalytic in, in bringing this work to public attention and bringing it some scholarly legitimacy. And Allison has been very deeply involved in that, um, in that movement to recognize um, what this brings uniquely to the practice of, of media scholarship. Um, so her, um, this essay also attempts to ground that practice in the historical tradition of the essay film uh, or essay video. Um, And I think it makes some really nice uh, and useful historical um, comparisons at the same time that she's talking about a couple of the auteurs that have emerged in that field, um, a guy named Koganata and Kevin B. Lee, um, two of the most prolific and sort of most celebrated um, video essayists um, that are working right now. And these two um, really interestingly bleed across the line between scholarship and the popular because it's recuts of you know, mostly commercial film and television, um, to which a kind of scholarly eye is um, deployed.
2: So then, of course, part four brings us into politics. It's called auteurs, politics, and popularity. And there's no question that the popular, one of the most popular genres, I guess, we'll put for for some docu- for documentaries is political documentaries, political related. Uh, it's just become the norm especially for certain uh, documentarians to to go that way with what they do and of course this is where Errol Morris comes back again. Unfortunately, the author of this particular essay passed away before the collection came out so I really want to make sure we talk a little bit about uh, Errol Morris and the ends of irony yeah uh,
1: yeah this this was uh, um, this was another essay th- that we were thrilled to have included they I mean, they're all great um, but thrilled to have included and that Jonathan um, worked on till really very near the end of his far too short life and um, he's written a lot about uh, about Errol Morris and the issue of irony and also of documentary reenactment in other places but um, when I asked him if he wanted to contribute something to the anthology uh, he, he, of course, in the kind of um what's the word oh the the way that he would think outside the box I'm gonna speak in a cliche, but he he decided to pick um an Errol Morris film that was decidedly unpopular and and that failed at the box office and um and i i I think this is a great piece um where he he really looks at where whether or not you know what Failed to kind of gain traction in standard operating procedure was that Morris's playful, ironic tone didn't work and didn't and, and failed there. Um and, that, um, and that perhaps he wasn't trafficking so much in issues of irony in that project so much as kind of the excuse, um, in a way. So, I think it's really um interesting theoretical kind of meditation on commercial failure but but using like Paul Demont to, to do so so um, it's I think it's a terrific essay
2: yeah and of course Errol Morris and and, and Steve I want to make sure if you give you a chance to, to jump in here too but Errol Morris obviously known for the uh, the other two in that particular group of documentaries which of course is Fog of War and um, the unknown known both of which uh, definitely have the stamp of Errol Morris on them. Okay, Um, and then the next one in this particular section is Verite, Lauren Greenfield and the Challenge of Feminist documentary, uh, Shiloh Warren, and once again, it's the idea that uh, when you deal with certain topics, it's going to have a political uh, concept, even whether you like it or not i don't want to say like it or not or whether you mean to or not that there's certain topics verite obviously means truth so uh what was shiloh trying to or what did shiloh point out as far as what her contribution
1: so shiloh's made uh made her you know career on becoming a real expert on feminist uh, feminist documentary of the 1970s. So she's really enmeshed in the kind of feminist verite um, theory and, and um, practice of, a, of that historical moment. But for this particular project, a, a project she totally proposed, she was really interested in certain filmmakers who have gained, feminist filmmakers, who have gained um, considerable critical cachet and who have made profitable films but who nobody is writing about. <laughs> no, Like there are no conference papers on Lauren Greenfield to, to be found at, at visible evidence. So part of her project was really to try to reclaim her work for feminism or for a certain brand of um, ideologically correct feminism and to expand the, the kind of read on that. Um, so I, I think it's a really important paper and great to put it under a tourism because Greenfield herself has a significant body of work, uh, both as a photographer and a filmmaker. Um, but nice to put her up against Anara Morris, right, in that subject, in that in that group uh, heading there. And it's a it's a it's a really great paper.
2: And then we can move to the the last essay in that particular part, which is Citizen Four and the anti rep- anti <laughs> Try that again, anti-representational turn, aesthetics of failure in the information age. And this one I found interesting because obviously it's sort of particularly technology-driven given that we're talking about information that uh, wasn't supposed to be out there but got out and then we had a chance to get some real good interior details about the processes and the information.
0: Yeah, I think um, you know Topiary-Landberg's um, take on that's really interesting because it's a kind of an implicit interrogation of um, kind of the idea of seeing is believing and making the argument that anti-representation or a kind of failed um, politics of visibility might be the way kind of like the way to actually gain information about the world um, in, in the circumstances that we're in now. Not that it's a kind of abdication of the responsibility of representation or of signification through, um, through the documentary form, um, but that m- maybe part of the ethos of the, the moment that we're living in now is about recapturing a sense of connection to, to truth and verifiability without relying on kind of like the naivete of, um, of you know, visual positivism.
2: Then we get to part five, which is documentary genres. And once again, there's there are many, many documentary genres, and we of course hit them in various other sections too. But uh, the three here, uh, and the first is Christie's essay that's in the collection of Kids and Sharks: Victims, Heroes, and the Politics of Melodrama in Popular Documentary. What area of documentary were you sort of trying to uh, to review and describe as far as this your essay, Christie?
1: Um, it it was really, it came out of a uh, a longstanding interest that I have in melodrama and melodrama studies. And I think sometimes once you immerse yourself in um in the discourse of a field, you start seeing it everywhere. <laughs> um, but I certainly started reading it in across so many of the documentaries, particularly popular documentaries that I was looking at, because they might traff traffic in a more facile way in moral polarization, but documentaries are full of victims, right? Grierson, you know, talks about the tradition of the victim. Brian Winston talks about that in the Griersonian documentary tradition. So it was really just an effort to try to talk about how models and um, theories that we have used for 40 years to talk about fiction film can and should be really usefully and productively applied to documentary I didn't get that idea from myself. You know, Jane Gaines also has written several essays, you know, to to sort of advance the importance of doing that, but I just decided to pick two two films that really are not connected in terms of the subject matter and show how they really do deploy all of these techniques of melodrama and ask how useful that is, right? You know, is is it a productive mode to deploy we, we see it coming it's it's popular to do. It, it moves us emotionally, creates pathos and affect, but is that the way to go? Um, so I just try to sort of uh, interrogate that in this paper. And I decide it works sometimes, and it doesn't work other right. times basically and it right.
2: goes back to the concept that documentarians have a point of view. It's not meant to be objective, and the times will come where information's presented and the the filmmaker as a specific reason for why they're including it in the way they do. For sure. And then the second one is about popular music documentary, which we've already talked about briefly with the short forms, but we've also, as we've already, as I already mentioned, we've got plenty of popular music documentaries. What does Landon Palmer mean by recovery mode? That's the one part of the title of the essay that I'm a little bit interested in finding out what, what's meant by that.
1: Um, he's he's looking at documentaries that are trying to rehabilitate forgotten artists, right? Trying to rehabilitate um, certain careers, and interrogates the degree to which that is less about expanding the kind of the the popular music canon, so much as just helping to kind of um, reinforce canonization of of music and of the music genre in um, in, in interesting ways, but. I think for him, you know, with 20 Feet from Stardom and Searching for Sugarman, he was looking at what had become a kind of subgenre of documentaries that are looking at overlooked artists, um, artists whose histories had not yet been told and trying to find a place for them in um, in the canon.
2: And then, of course, the last essay in there, Assembling Nanking, Archival Filmmaking in the Popular Historical Documentary. And Popular Historical Documentaries is another one where we seem to have... Uh, Sometimes be inundated with them. We mentioned Ken Burns before, but uh, uh, what? Uh, obviously, the idea of using archival uh, materials as part of a film, a documentary film, and and how do you represent it? And does it actually give value, or is it just meant there, meant to be there for uh, window dressing? Yeah. So this. Yeah, it
0: is. I mean, Chris, Christy found Dylan Nelson uh, for this for this project and brought it in. But I think I was the did did some of the editing. Uh, and for me, it was really um, one of the most exciting pieces, precisely having spent time in actually many years in documentary editing rooms and witnessing on a daily basis, in a very practical way, the kind of ethical decisions that we make. Uh, in assembling a historical record and kind of like telling a story or based on that, on, based on what we have to show. And um, so Dylan does a, an incredibly, I think, insightful job of interrogating that process and talking about the, the difficult choices that one makes when you are choosing, um, you know, between quote, documentary footage, you know, sort of uh, versus, um, you know, fictional recreated, footage and um, the ways in which you can or can't get as close as you can to the truth with each of those different kinds of um, of evidentiary modes. Um, so I think I think this is an essay that should be assigned in every documentary filmmaking class, anytime you're teaching documentary editing, anything to do with historiography. Um, she just does a really nice job of uh, of outlining what that process is like from a, from a very historically informed and scholarly mode, but also with the eye of a practitioner.
1: That was, that was great. I also sort of connected to the kind of anti-representational turn issue that Topiary deals with. I think this has a lovely symmetry with that because she's trying to interrogate how, when we don't have the footage in, in a visual medium like the documentary, what are the ethical stakes involved in substituting the the what the footage we don't have for something that might suffice, right? So I think yeah.
2: It's not that far away from the issues related to recreations. Uh yeah. in this particular case, it's not a recreation per se, it's just a substitution. But um you're right. It's it's still part of the same thing. And the recent uh, controversy over the Anthony Bourdain documentary where they actually used AI to recreate some of his wording some of his voice for parts of it that they did not have actual audio for is they they told everybody but uh it's still something that you have to think about yeah and then finally part 6 engaging audiences uh we've got uh the first is virility Virality is virility, vir, 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 a lot of these, viral media, popularity and violence. And I'm sure we're talking nowadays, the concept of viral media, if somebody says something went viral, everybody's seen most people who, you, you know, who are tied in in any way to social media understands what viral video is. And, uh, Alexandra, uh, Juhasz, Juhasz. Or, thank you um, uh, talks about, uh, this, this issue.
0: Yeah, So I guess viruses have a little bit of a different valence uh, these days than they did when, when the book was going to press. Um, but uh, again, this is one of the um, chapters that I think is really deeply rooted in the moment in which it was written. And it originated as a series of um, web texts that Alex was um, posting online, engaging uh, a community around you know, what was happening primarily in the US, but kind of under the, the administration that was in power at that time. Um, and, wh- and the ways that we were responding, and what what tools do we actually have to speak back um, to the to the systems of propagation of this incredible campaign of disinformation? Um, and you know, the we, we used to think of culture jamming or kind of tactical media, you know, the reappropriation of commercial media that it was sufficient to speak back. And I think that what this um, piece illustrates is. That it's um, it's not enough to just enter into that system and kind of like whatever you're doing, you're supporting the Facebook algorithm or the Instagram algorithm, or you're um, you're ultimately just like feeding back into that in a way that is not resistant, it's not oppositional, um, and so this is to my mind a, a really a necessary contribution to this piece. It anchors it in the moment that it was that it was produced, uh, and it's angry and direct in a way that. Uh, is pretty rare in in contemporary scholarship. So I'm I'm very pleased about this um about this chapter as well.
2: And of course now we've come to what who I consider to be an unsug hero as far as the collection and uh storage and and and, and museum on quality work of somebody like somebody in this case Rick Prowlinger, Populism, participation and perpetual incompletion, performing an urban history comments what is with all these uh, alliterations in these book article titles <laughs> i know so steve, a... I, steve i assume yep. that uh, i think you had said that you brought rick in on this project
0: uh yeah i think that's right uh yeah. and it was a requirement that you come up with an alliterative title to contribute to the to the volume that's make it hard volume. to say them out loud yeah um, but so, yeah, I mean, you know, Rick Perlinger is, is like kind of like a, a deity for, for many of us who, you know, are interested in kind of like the fringes of any kind of media production. Um, and this was a very exciting project because it mapped onto and provided him an opportunity to reflect on um, a kind of public history project that he's been doing for a number of years, which are these um, traveling uh, these collections of films that are geographically rooted. Um, and so it's like the lost landscapes of San Francisco. He has a series that he he did did some in Los Angeles, um, also in Detroit. Very attentive to the the demographics and the politics of individual communities, and the basic thing that he does, which is, I mean, I think in in the twenty first century, um, perhaps totally unique, um, is show these films silent and invite audience participations. People call out recollections questions challenges hey where was that shot i remember that that building got torn down Um, and it really becomes it's a very different take on the popular but it's maybe the most kind of literal one that we have in the book about involving people in their community as it's seen on screen Um, and just i i I can't say enough good things about these um, performances at the same time they are in-person, live, almost site-specific performances. So it's not popular in the sense of reaching the broadest audience, um, but it is the most perhaps engaging and engaged um, form that we have in the book.
2: And of course, his w- w- a lot of these uh, collections are, uh, for all of the material that he's collected, uh, it becomes another place you can go into a rabbit hole pretty easily. The other nice thing I like about a lot of his material is that it's easily downloadable so that you can view it on your own and don't have to be tied to a computer or device all the time. Well, a device, because you have to watch it, but uh, I think that makes it even more interesting as far as being able to to watch this material. Um then the next chapter or in the second last chapter, of course, deals with true crime, which <laughs> we wait till almost the end, but in many ways, true crime documentaries have now become the norm. I, I start to believe especially on many of the places where we get our our content that if they don't have at least 10 true crime demo- documentaries on you know each, on each platform, there's something wrong. In this chapter, the armchair juror, audience engagement in true crime documentaries, George S. Lark-Walsh. We obviously want to talk. This is a very important part of popular documentaries, true crime.
1: Yeah, she, George does a great job here. I I actually think she's putting together uh, an edited anthology on true crime documentary as we speak, but um, I think she does a great job of talking about so many of the kind of conventions, but also the enormous kind of pleasurable appeals of this kind of subgenre within documentary and the explosion of it alongside podcasts too but um but she's dealing primarily with obviously the visual um, medium of documentary but yeah it's a great paper
2: and of course this is going to continue as of yesterday where uh, supposedly they think they finally figured out who the zodiac killer was so i can imagine anybody who's ever talked about the zodiac will have an appendix to do on their individual documentaries and podcasts that uh, so um, it just proves that true crime has always been of interest. It's uh, it runs our television networks to a large extent, but now we're getting them in re- and it, they, those weren't not necessarily true crime, but crime. And now, as you point out, it's become so important in documentaries. And then finally, the last essay in the collection, also still under engaging audiences, is Steve's essay new old ontologies of documentary and i'll let you have pretty much the last word about the doc, the essays here steve since this one was yours hey thanks um yeah so this um
0: was a chapter that emerged basically from the work that i've been doing since i uh, arrived at ucla a few years ago um which I, I was hired um moved across town from usc to ucla just as facebook acquired oculus the um Virtual reality head-mounted display manufacturer, and so um, all of a sudden VR was everywhere again for the third time. You know, every couple decades we we do, we rediscover the possibility of immersive media, and we declare it to be the the newest best thing ever, and it's going to change everything. And and um, and there has been a, an interesting impact on the field of documentary, to my mind, because of this. Um, because where everybody expected that it was going to go immediately to first-person shooter games and being immersed in these 3D environments where you can blow shit up everywhere Mm -hmm. you look. At the same time, what we get is this um, emergent practice of uh, of really socially engaged uh, documentary making. And 360 video, which is completely different technologically from 3D game environments where you can interact and run around and move around in the space, Uh, it's actually a return to a very old form of kind of like the actuality and you know the camera has to stay in one position or you feel really sick Um, and basically you know it's it's a return to kind of long takes and wide angle views and action that unfolds in real time in front of you so it's kind of the antithesis of a lot of the the trends that we've seen in popular documentary you know certainly televisually and, and theatrical features um you know where the movement is toward uh, a faster style and a a kind of more um i don't know uh, a more contemporary sensibility in the way things are put together so it was interesting to me to think about the kind of mapping on of that history onto this new technology Um, it's to my mind the most dubious claim to the popular um, I kind of accept Facebook and Oculus's claim that this is, you know, everybody's going to have one of these in, in their living room in, a, in just a couple of years, and it's going to be a $2 billion industry. Um, never quite got there. Um, we're still, every once in a while, those, those claims will reemerge. Um, but you know, there's still a limited number of people who have these devices in their home. And even if you do, you have to buy a new one every 18 months to two years or the technology's outdated. So anyway, so it has all of these kind of complicated and contradictory elements in terms of pop, its actual popularity. Um, but I thought it was interesting to think about the, um, the evolution of this evidentiary mode and of you know, s- seeing the world around you as a way of gaining
2: access to knowledge about the world. So obviously, new
1: is old again. Yeah,
2: well, well, that's like with 3D. I mean, you know, it always—it's another example of something that always seems to come back, or it's been around. We've had 3D in the past as well, and then it came back, and now it's—we had 3D televisions, and those didn't really do very much, and now it's pretty much gone again. So, although we still get the occasional 3D in the movie theaters, in fact, a lot of the popular uh, comic book movies these days—they still use 3D quite a bit, but. I think uh, other than that, I don't think we're seeing it very much. Well, this is an incredible collection, and I know we tried to make sure we gave proper uh, view of every essay that's in here. Um, I hope it's given folks a better understanding of what's in the collection. I think uh, there is so much here that is worth continuing to review and to study, and I hope other folks, uh, that many people, not just the scholars, because I think there's a lot in here that could be of interest to somebody who just is interested in documentary and wants to know a little bit more than um, what they've seen. If they want background. Uh, there's a lot here. So I want to take a moment to thank both of you. I know um, this can be to, to something this involved can take quite a bit of your uh, time and mind for a long time. So um I think they did you did a great job with it. Uh I wanna give each of you a last chance if there's something you wanna say as far as the collection and, and at your point of view, it'd be great. Uh Christy.
1: Oh, I I th- just I thank you for your interest and your questions. It's been it's been lovely chatting with you about it and reconnecting with Steve over Zoom again. But uh but but thank you for asking us about the book. I think, it's, I think it is an important collection and I hope it's the beginning of, um, of many other conversations uh, about popular documentary.
0: Yeah, and I would just echo that too, Joel. Thank you for, for your time and your interest and your incredible knowledge about this, this subject. It's a real pleasure to be uh, interviewed in these circumstances. And I hope it's okay that I use the word shit. This is the internet, right? Not, this <laughs> don't worry about it. If, they don't, if
2: my editors don't like it, they can cut it out. I'm not going to worry about it. <laughs> I mean, we don't really use the explicit tag in iTunes, but that's okay. I don't think the average child's listening to our podcast. So (laughs) anyway, anyway, well, and I can't imagine that a lot of scholars don't use that word pretty regularly, even though they may (laughs) not want to admit to it. So anyway, thank you both. I really had a great time talking about this and, uh, um, we'll see. We may end up uh, crossing paths again. I've interviewed some folks multiple times, depending on their work. So hopefully I'll hear from you both again at some point. And thanks, a lot for your time.
1: Thank you, Joel. Thanks. It was great.
2: Bye. I hope you enjoyed our discussion and agree about the importance of the newer popular documentary films. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.